Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. At the end of this reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the store and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your, co- your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for, for you, their hearts will go out to you, because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Okay, so, um, once again, you're welcome to City Church, as Femi has said, uh, a gospel-centered urban church. And permit me if you are already, how many of us are tired of me speaking about being a gospel-centered urban church? Just raise your hand. But if you are tired, actually, you can leave now. Um, no, but you know, Paul himself says that uh, sometimes it, the, the things that uh, he repeats are not grievous to him. But they're always good for our benefit. And we need to remind ourselves of what we, who we are. This is why we actually do the confessions that we do. You know, it's, you can say, well, I already know it, so it doesn't have any kind of meaning. But actually, the things that we repeat over and over again, they find a way of getting into our subconscious. And so when we speak about our identity as a gospel centered church, again, we want to, we're using it to encapsulate what it is that we believe we are and where we're going. And so even as we look towards inaugurating the church in January, and hopefully January 8th next year, we still want to keep thinking through, from the Word of God, in our practices, who we are and trying to form them. And so like what we've been doing in terms of our preaching series is that we've looked at the Gospel, because we're gospel centered, but we've also, and that we did a series on that in, um, in September. This month, we're doing more on the church because we're a gospel-centered church. So we've done certain things that bind the church together, baptism, 
uh, Lord's Supper, the fact that we're community of love. And this time, now we are really treating generosity in our money, in our time, and in our, with our talents. Next time, we're going to look at things that the urban, the urban church normally would actually, the challenges that we face and the things that God has called us into. So we're looking at marriage in three part series, we're looking at our faith as well in three part series. But I won't come back to what we're doing today. Now, unfortunately, if you've not been here the first time, all this is, well, I, I don't think there was anyone that's coming for the first time, but if you're coming for the first time and you're again thinking, oh, yeah, you're just like all these other churches, you're talking about money. Well, the first thing I would say is that we're speaking about money because the Bible speaks a lot about money. That's only money, we're talking generosity in, um, uh, as a whole, but a huge part of that is money now. The Bible speaks a lot about money. It neither disparages or condemns wealth, but it warns us about its dangers. Now, you can be like those who would say, well, you're overwhelmed in discussions about money, and I think that's wrong, and I think a lot of people are rightly leaving the kind of churches that would actually be like that. But at the same time, reaction to that, then you say we shouldn't talk about it. When actually money does every, we use money in every aspect of our lives. Alright, so, if I ask this question, who owns your money? Even the your is a little bit of a giveaway, but who owns the money that you spend? Now, every good Christian here will say, of course, now it's God. God owns my money. Alright. Now, some of us are not that pious, right? Some of us will say, well, God owned it. And then he gave it to me. <laughs> so once we even go further and say, God gave me the opportunities, not that God owns it. God gave me the opportunities, I used it and utilized it, and now the money is mine. Thank you very much. Now, if you answer by the latter to just consider this illustration of the farmer, because we there was a lot about farming in this particular passage, right? The farmer is called to do certain things if he needs to get a harvest, right? He's meant to plant. He's meant to water, he's meant to toil, he's meant to rig, he's meant to fight pests. All those things, if he doesn't do it, there will be no harvest, assuredly. But the other things the farmer cannot do. The farmer does not create soil. He doesn't create the seed that he plants. He has no power over the sun. He has no power over the rain. In other words, the farmer actually has certain things to do, but there are conditions around him that he has nothing that he can actually, he has no control over that is left to at least something or someone else. In the same way, you may be a business person here, a successful business person, and you think, well, I am a self-made millionaire, really? Fine, you worked hard, maybe you actually studied hard, you spoke to the right people, you spoke to them well, but actually you don't have any control over the laws that are being made in the country. You have no control over domestic accidents, thank God that you're actually not being involved. You don't choose your parents or the schools that you actually they send you to. You don't set the economic conditions. No matter how good a businessman you were, for you to have succeeded in 1929 in the Great Depression, you had to be like someone like Al Capone. You had to probably go under. I'm not saying there are one or two people that made it, but almost virtually every talented person couldn't make it there. So the myth of being a self-made millionaire, it really is a myth. In other words, the Christian response here would be that truly God owns our money. Now, but what does that mean if you already confess that concretely? If you say someone owns something, well, it means for maybe you can't say, it means I give back my money or I give my time, I give it back to the church. I give some of it back to the church. Or, since it's God's money, I really can't take a bribe. Well, some of that will be slightly true, but there's something more fundamental about that. If God owns your money and God owns the things that belong to you, the talent, then it means that you are not the owner, you are a steward. 
And concretely, a steward means that whatever you own or whatever is given to you doesn't, you're not the owner. The owner tells you what he wants you to do with it. So if our resources are owned by God and we're just stewards, we then have to ask him, what does he want us to do with it? And one thing we're very clear about is that, and this passage that we looked at, is that God wants us to be generous in giving. Last time we spoke about the heart of, of the one who gives. We said that person is a lover. Now we want to go into a little bit more bolts, uh, bolts and knots today. And so we're going to take this generosity in giving in three parts, right? It's going to be the, pur- the purpose of giving, the manner of giving, the source of giving. The purpose of giving, the manner of giving, and the source of giving. Now, look around. Our natural tendency is, let's be frank, let's, let's be honest with ourselves, we're all consumers. We love to consume. And this view of consumerism, as the 21st century has rolled on, and we probably take from, really, the, the, the last century, we've seen an increase. We, people, we cons- just think of how many iPhones, for instance. All right, my phone has actually been acting up. And so I've been thinking, should I, should I not get one? I actually say, I'm not going to change the phone until it's two years old. It's actually about uh, a year and a half. But actually, the way it's going, I probably will not have a phone. So my wife has been giving me the prices of all the other phones. And this other day, she comes and says, well, you can buy this iPhone 5 something. Right, you know, they always have letters after. And it was about 200 grand, which I was like, you know, I was, I, I don't know whether I even used any ungodly words at the time, you know, but I was just like, how can you, you know, how can they be selling blah, 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 blah. So she then later then says, um, she now rea- makes me realize that actually the iPhone 5S is not even the latest one. And I thought, well, you have to be kidding. That time I now blew my toe. Then I realized it's actually not the you know, the phone before the latest phone is like the iPhone 7. I said that's like 500 or 600k. I can assure you, I didn't use any godly word at this point. <laughs> but actually, you buy that particular phone now, by next year, it's actually the old model. And yet, when I, Apple releases it, you'll see people queuing up all around. Or talk about Gucci bags. Right? Or even Gucci slippers. Right now, it's not nice that Dunlop slippers are like so passe, right? If you, are, if you are full of swagger and style, every single thing, down to your underwear, down to your slippers, everything needs to be, we consume and consume and consume. In fact, the World Bank, uh, about 10 years ago, released, yeah, you can correct me if not, they released in particular the fact that 20% of the world, 20% of the world's riches consume over 75% of what we actually have. That a fifth consume over three quarters of what we have. The middle 60% take about 22, and then the poorest 20 take about 1.5%. In other words, what we have sold to us by advertisements and many things is you are worth it. You should have that. In fact, when we have businesses, we tell our, our, our staff, and we tell, remember the customer is king, or the customer is always right. Now that is such a stupid statement, isn't it? You know that the customer is not always right. But actually, the customer is always right because you want to reap from the customer. And so whatever the customer says is always right. We're encouraging the customer, the, 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 the business owner is actually tapping into this consumerist mindset of the customer so that he can actually reap from it. We may play for the fool. 
Now we take that consumerist mindset and bring it into something like giving. If you remember one of the personalities we looked at last week, right? That you give to charity, but you don't give to charity for its own sake. You give to charity to actually get a reputation. And so many people actually give, it's still a consumerist mindset, they give so that they can have a better reputation. Or they give so that they're doing CSR, corporate social responsibility, so that they can have more business. Or they give, if they're religious, to say, and I can get something back from God. God is the ultimate cosmic ATM machine. Tax benefit. Anyway, but the Christian version of this, unfortunately, taken largely from this passage, is within a larger framework of a teaching that basically says God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and rich, and this is done in the in the in the atonement of Christ. You then have this thing about well, nothing. I know what you call it, but I put it here. So it's see doctrine, and it basically does something that accentuates the reaping. You go to verse six, and it accentuates the reaping. And by doing that, and I've seen this to the shame of people who profess to be Christians, used on people in the most despicable uh, manner ways. It preys most of the time on the vulnerable. I've seen a guy actually present himself, he was on TV and says, you have a thousand, if, if you are in debt, God told me just take your credit card and sow a thousand dollars into my ministry. How wicked is that? It makes us more greedy because it actually feeds more into this consumerist mindset. So you actually get from God and then you keep wanting to get from God. It turns people that were around us, it makes us, it makes them objects. Because we don't really care about who they are, we just care about what we can get from them. Have you ever opened an account? You have a customer, uh, what they call it, client, um, service officer, or whatever. If anything opens the account from you like this, it's gone. He's looking for somebody else that actually, I don't believe in that much actually. The system that is actually set up that puts certain kinds of targets on them that they really can't make. And it makes us generally more odious and repulsive to the people around us. This sowing our seed and sowing our seed. Now this reminds me of a particular joke. I need to read it to you. I hope you find it funny. I always find it funny. If you don't find it funny, then you're not born again. Alright? Now, let me go. It's about an Uncle Andy. Uncle Andy has this column. He writes a column. And you know how this column is at the back of the back page of newspapers. They know every single thing. It's really pop psychology and all that. But people write into them with all their problems in life, right? They can solve the issue of global warming, your marriage, your finances, and I won't say the last one. Now, so someone writes into Uncle Andy and listen to it. So, dear Uncle Andy, always a dear. I am a lady age 26 and my husband is 34. I left my husband with the maid and our baby at home. After driving for just about two kilometers from home, my car engine started to overheat. So I had to return and get the other car. When I got home, I found my husband in bed with our maid. I don't know what to do. Please help me. Don't find the right back. Dear reader, Overheating of the engine after such a short distance can be caused by problems associated with the radiation. You need to check the oil and water levels in your engine before you start your journey. You must also make sure your car is serviced regularly to avoid problems in the future. I hope my answer will help you. You get the point. The problem is that he didn't. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Most often than not, we read that passage in the same way Uncle Andy actually listened to that reading. 
You see, what we do is that we think, or quite often a lot of people would say that the aim here is that God wants us to be reapers. He's trying to get us to be reapers. So let me read that passage to you again and listen to it. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. I'm going to kind of combine it together. And I'm going to read verse 11. Now, I want you to look at your passage, right? I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 and then 11. Now, verse 8. Abound in every good work that is freely scattered against to the poor, so that God is able to bless you abundantly in all things at all times, having all that you need. Oh, they didn't get the point. I said, look at your passage. All right? I'm going to read verse 8 and verse 9 again. Abound in every good work that is freely scattered gives to the poor, so that God is able to bless you abundantly in all things at all times, having all that you need. Alright? Okay, maybe you guys aren't that smart. Yes, I don't know why you're saying no. I never let not to question the pastor, especially when he's under the anointing preaching. I'm going to read verse 11 this time. Be generous on every occasion so that you will be enriched in every way. What's the problem? Now, what we have to do here is to follow the so that. What so that acting as? So that is like a, is a conjunction, right? It joins, it's in the sentence there, it joins what comes before it and then what comes, and what comes after it by revealing what is after it to be the purpose of what was before. I'll say that again. The so that functions as a joiner between what comes before it and what comes after it. What comes after it is the goal and the purpose of what comes before it. So look at verse 18, uh, verse, uh, but let me just quickly take verse 11. Verse 11 says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Remember verse 7 does not say that God loves a generous reaper. It says God loves what? A generous giver. I'm oh, sorry, a cheerful giver. The emphasis is not on the reaping, the emphasis is on the giving. Of verse 11, when God blesses you, it is not for the purpose of you accumulating, that is what consumerism is about, it's for the purpose of you being able to give even much more. You will be enriched in every way so that you are able to give on every occasion. The motivation to give, actually, is the ability to give more. Even verse 8, when it says abounding in every good work, what is the abounding in every good work? Is what you find in verse 9. This ability to freely scatter to the poor, it demonstrates righteousness. The problem with consumerism is that rather than the goal of God being righteousness demonstrating giving, it leads us to redemonstrating reaping. The stand tells us that God who supplies our seed, he will increase our seed again. So when you go back to verse 6, the issue here is not whether, as you sow, you actually reap. The thing here is that those who sow sparingly reap sparingly. But those who sow generously reap generously. The issue there is generosity. It's not whether or not you get reaping from sow. God loves what? A cheerful giver. Now, I say that I point that out. That's why verse 7 then makes sense. If you're going with a consumerist mindset, when you want to give, you would either give reluctantly or under feel like you're compulsed to give. The compulsion actually in our day is not with someone putting a gun to your head. 
The compulsion is someone telling you that if you do not give in to this particular project, God is going to send the devourer against you. You know what happened to your kid last night? That terrible thing that happened to your kid? It's because you didn't give money to the church the other time. This is wicked. You know why you didn't get that, other, that particular contract? I can tell you, if you want five wonderful juicy contracts, just so this particular amount. I don't take pleasure in doing this. But I don't think the people who have been ripped off don't want to tell it. I don't think actually they enjoy what has, been, what has happened to them. And much more. I think the heart of our Savior and God bleeds for this kind of thing. His name is blasphemed every day. Yes, Whereas the issue of giving is something much more joyful. Notice he says, God loves what? A cheerful giver. Not one that is manipulated. Not one that feels he's under compulsion. But one whose heart has been changed. Giving is his identity. And therefore he decides in his heart. He doesn't have to be compulsed. It's not under compulsion. Neither also is it reluctant. When you've actually been... Ugh. In verse 5, it says, therefore, you don't give grudging. You give cheerfully. Now, let me move to the next two points because this has been a little bit somber. All right, so let's quickly move on. Now, if I want to be a giver, if I want to be a giver, now, we, last week, we really talked about the heart of the giver. And I'm saying again here that when you read this passage, which oftentimes is abuse, actually, the point is being a giver. It's not being a giver for the purpose of acquisition of more things. It is the end and the goal is actually to give more. But last week we didn't get into the bolt, uh, the, the, the bolt and not a bit. So I want to get into more of the heart, alright? So my second point, the manner of giving. I'm going to spend a little bit more time here. In verse 11 it says, We should be generous on every occasion. Generous on every occasion. Now, that means at least an examination of three things, alright? So we're going to look under this too. The character, um, of, uh, the, the giving character, giving channels, and giving proportion, all right? Giving character, giving channels, and giving proportion, or in other words, the how, the who, and the what. The how, the who, and the what. Now, apart from the fact that we give, now let's talk about the character. Apart from the fact that we give cheerfully, there are four other things I want us to consider. One, uh, four of them, that we give, our giving should be done thoughtfully, preparedly, regularly, and spontaneously. Thoughtfully, preparedly, regularly, and spontaneously. Now look at that uh, phrase in verse 7, where it says, decided in your heart. Decided in your heart. Now don't think the heart is, um, and the Bible is very, very uh, different from other kinds of philosophies on these. The heart is the center. This follows the Jewish tradition. The heart is the center of the human being. It's not just the center of your emotion. It's basically, I like how someone puts it, it says, Whatever your heart, whatever your heart accepts, whatever is you know, in your heart, your mind uh, uh, rationalizes, your emotion desires, and your will actually activates. So the heart is actually the seat. If you want to know what a person really is, that is in the heart. So as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So when he says someone decides, now decision actually requires that we think about something, right? Decides. He's thought about something, he looks at it and says, yeah, this is what it is. Now the Bible says we should decide so that we are not deceived. 
If someone else decides for us, if someone else just tells us basically how it goes, then actually we are being manipulated, it's not being thoughtful. So we decide ourselves so thoughtfully. And then again, we have to be prepared. I have never met a person who does not prepare to give and does so consistently. Just simple. And we'll get back to the spontaneous part, but really we are meant to be prepared. These people in what you check, um, the context is basically Paul is trying to gather money from both the Macedonian church and the church in Achaia, so Corinthians and um, 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 what is that in Macedonia? Philippians and all those kind of people. So he gathers the money and he wants to give it to the people in Jerusalem. In 1 Corinthians 16-12 he says, Now about the collection of for the lost people do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So it has to be prepared, it has to be thoughtful, but it has to be consistent. This feeds into the previous point. That we prepare, but it also has to be consistent. Do you know why? If it is not consistent, we always default back to our consumerist nature. If you don't actually make it consistent, prepared, what would always happen is that mm, I should, but I, I can't, I forgot. But all you're thinking about me is still how you can actually acquire more. And finally, it should be spontaneous. Now, this almost goes against the one that is saying you should be prepared. And we'll get more into that. But it says on every occasion. Every occasion. So it's not just what I have prepared for, but I also should be prepared to give even when it's something that I see a need at the immediate, at, at, um, that's right in front of me. So if, our current, if we're giving cheerfully, we also ought to give thoughtfully, preparedly, regularly, and spontaneously. Now, what about our giving channels? And very soon the slide will come. Now remember in verse 12, as I said, if we look at verse 12, it is saying the service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people. What this particular context is, is that they're trying to give to the Lord's people. They're trying to give to the Jerusalem church. Hold on. They're trying to give to the Jerusalem church. Now, when we're thinking of who and what to give to, there are two things you must always think about. It's priority. Uh, we, we have to prioritize based on proximity. You have to prioritize. Why do we prioritize? We prioritize because, I don't know, I can't see Bill Gates or Warren Buffett here. And even Bill Gates actually prioritizes his money. In other words, we have finite resources. You can't give, even if I, even, no matter how much, you can't give to everybody in this particular church. And give equally, and give actually everything that everyone needs. In other words, so we have to prioritize. Now, how do we prioritize? That prioritization is going to be based on how close, in some geographical and spiritual way, the people around us are. So this is why I say it's about proximity. We prioritize according to proximity. So for instance, if we just divide between the lost people and those who are not the lost people, Galatians 6.10 tells us, do good unto all men, especially those who are the household of faith. So in other words, he's saying we should be generous to all, but then he actually relativizes that. He says there's one that you should be more committed to because in terms of proximity, they are spiritually closer to you than the other people. Now this prioritization has to, it has to work out in your regularity, your amount and need. In other words, what I'm saying is that not all channels occupy the same importance. Not all channels occupy the same importance. So I'm going to run through about five of them. 
right now we can see and this is in an order of importance that doesn't mean that after you've done please hear me out it doesn't mean after you've done number one finish everything you can do for number one then you can move to number two that's not what it is but number one takes priority over number two all right so the first is who is the most proximately closest to you it's your family all right god actually puts you in the family you have particular children you don't say fortunately as some people do i'm going to give as much money to church first before I actually decide what school my children are going to. You don't do that, right? Or you don't think, well, I'm going to give money to the breakfast that we're having in church, but I don't know what's going to happen with lunch and dinner at home. Alright? When Paul was thinking about um, widows in the church, he wanted to give five and how they should be given. He said, well, first of all, the widow's family should take care of them because if one doesn't provide for their family, they're worse than an infidel. So our families become the closest to us. So if the specifics will be things like rent, school fees, feeding and all that. Now the second one is the church. Now let me say something which I will qualify later, but it may sound a bit provocative. When you give to the church, you're not giving to God. Okay, let me qualify it now. When you do all this, in some sense you are giving to God. But the sense in which that only the church is where you give and that means you are giving to God, there's a little bit of a problem that I hope to address later. Alright, but the second is not the church, but your church. Your local community that you are actually a member of. However you want to define membership. But the place where you actually are committed to. Now the Bible actually puts it in, in a particular way. With, um, and for instance, in Galatians 6.6, 6, it says the one who is instructed, let me just find it here, Galatians 6.6, 6, the one who, is instru- who receives instruction in the word should also share all good things with the instructor. Or 1 Corinthians 9, 11, 13, 14. This is a bit longer. If we have some spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? 13. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So, first of all, that in, in a direct way would actually speak to the preachers, the teachers, die in the church. In other words, if they dedicate their time to actually learn and to actually study so that you can be spiritually fed, then in terms of equality and reciprocity, you also, as you dedicate your own time to actually working in the way that, you know, the outside world, the free market and whatever, then also in the same way that they have sold among you, they should reap among you um, material. Do you understand? So if the church is the place where you actually receive spiritually, whilst you are actually working outside materially, then as they sow among you spiritually, you sow among them actually materially. Now I put my implication, now it starts with the leaders, the teachers, those, or those you know, it says that um, the others that serve well are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the world. No, but by implication, it would mean that everyone in the church, and the, the, the church itself, especially the, the, the pastor is a staff member, but there are also staff members, other staff members. For the church to actually run, the church actually needs money. It doesn't just need money, it needs your time. And so we are called to be generous with our resources to our church. Many of the commandments in the New Testament will make absolutely no sense in terms of giving to this, giving to that. How were they running? if actually the people were not contributing. And so you start with that, you also remember those who are vulnerable in the church, the poor in the church. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the poor outside don't matter, but remember it's about proximity. If your family, if you have no argument with your family and say, well, I have to give to my 
my daughter first if she's ill before I give to the child in Somalia, then it makes no sense. You are covenanted with all the Lord's people, but you are covenanted especially with the people around you. And so we have to give primacy in terms of care to those who are around us who are vulnerable. And then the mission of the local church as well. What is your church trying to do in the community? It's not that you should not be involved in doing things in the community, but this also takes priority because we do it together as one people. Alright, so I quickly move on. Other Christians and other churches. Now this speaks particularly to the context that we are in. In the passage that we're in. Paul actually is trying to gather money to identify with the Jerusalem church with, from other churches that are not in Jerusalem church. In other words, we're part of a global body of people. About the scandal, I would say, of the, the Southwestern Church that I was meeting with one, um, a leader in the USAID a few weeks, a few months ago, actually. And he just, you know, he, I was trying to like, yeah, please allow me to eat my food, right? You know, but he was just really against the church in the Southwest, which is probably the richest church in the nation, and saying how they just forgotten their brothers in the North. And I would say, actually, one of the big problems of that is the church in the Southwest is very, very consumerist. We actually always think about ourselves and how God bless us. And we don't even know, let alone try to even find out what is actually happening to our persecuted brothers in the north. In this particular context, Jerusalem was actually suffering from a drought. And so he was raising money from all the other churches. They gave not just of their wealth, but they gave of their poverty, it says in chapter 8. Even in the little that they had, they were able to identify with the other people. And then there are wider ministries. Um, you know, Paul speaks about how the Philippian church at one time was the only church that actually stood with him whilst he was actually trying to minister the gospel. In the letter to the book of Romans is actually written so that Paul, you know, they say it's, uh, Paul says it's just about the gospel. Actually, that's not the purpose that the, 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 the letter is written. There's fighting going on in the Roman church between Jews and Gentiles. Paul has a mission to go to Spain and he knows that he has to go through Rome. If the church is squabbling among themselves, how would they be able to support him, Romans 15, 24, how would they be able to support him to go to Spain? So he brings the gospel that actually unites them, Jew and Gentile, so that they can be united when it comes, so that they can support him on his way. In other words, the reason why the book of Romans is written is so that Paul can actually do wider ministry in Spain. So we should be involved in actually funding the work or helping somehow Creating awareness, you don't always have to give money, but please do. I know many missionaries, and hopefully one of them is going to visit us next week, Saturday, uh, Sunday here. They do need our help. They do need the, uh, the, the body of Christ to actually identify with them. Or you have mission agencies, or you have Christian humanitarian agencies. We are called to identify with them. And finally, wider humanity. Do good unto all men. Even though we do good unto the household of faith, we should also do good unto all men. There are wonderful foundations, wonderful charities, doing many things. We as Christians should be at the forefront of helping out in those things. So these are the channels that we actually give. Can I say one last thing? In chapter 8 verse 12, it does say yes, we should give, not according to what we don't have, but according to what we have. But if you're the kind of person that says, well, you don't, you, you don't understand, I, I have absolutely nothing. There are very few of us that actually have absolutely nothing. I was quite touched with two testimonies um, um, I heard during this week from some people in response to um, the message last week. Now, these are people I know don't earn that much. 
But they actually said that it changed their view on how they, they always felt that I don't have, I have to plan for myself, I have to plan for myself. If you're always, always planning for yourself, that means you don't trust the God who actually gives seed to the soul. I'm not saying we shouldn't be responsible in what we plan, but there are always people that are more needy than us. Can we please give to beggars and stop looking at beggars as though they're not human beings? I see that a lot, it breaks one's heart. They come and say, well, we don't know whether or not they are using, actually taking jobs, or we don't know what they're going to do with the money. All right, why don't you give it to them? God knows. And do your own part. One thing I can tell you is that if they really had the choice, they wouldn't be living on the, on the streets. And is it not better to err on the side of generosity than to err on the side of stinginess? Imagine if God was stingy with his own love towards us. Where do you think you are going? All right, I must move quickly now to the giving proportion. Thank you. Uh, proportion the what so if we don't the how and we don't the uh, we don't the how the who then we have to do the what and this one again is a little bit more controversial so just how much of my income should I be giving right and now this is loaded with the Lord if I, how much of my income should I be get the, the way that is even framed is almost like just how much of my income should I be giving to church that's the way it sounds. That's the way most people, you know, I remember one guy came to meet me a few years ago and said, our family just got a bonus in, uh, from, a bonus from his place of work. And he just needs to know just how much does he need to give to the church. And does it have to be before his tax or after his tax? So, I know it was <laughs> Now, traditionally in the church, I many of us who hold to this view, we, we, we have this... Um, uh, way of referring to what we give to the church. And remember, the reason why I went through all those channels is to basically say, what you give is not only to the church. And I say that as a pastor. But that's just what the Bible teaches. And I think that's what's good for you. And I'll tell you why. If you if you take this whole view of, let me just give to the church, do you know what you're doing? You're saying basically, what has God required of me? And to give to the church. I just have to do that. I'm not going to do above that. I'm not going to do less than that so that God doesn't punish me. But I'm not going to do above that so that I can keep all that belongs to me. Do you not see how terrible that is? Now, traditionally in church, the way we've held to giving, let's just say in, in the church, is basically a combination of what is required and what is actually spontaneous. So we call it tithes and offerings. So the tithe would represent a 10% of your income, whether you believe it is after tax or before tax, it doesn't matter, but a 10% of your income. And then offerings will be what happens when the offering basket is going around or if you have to give to a particular thing, all right? So one of them is fixed. One of them is almost required. This is actually what is required, and the other one is not, is not fixed. Now, let me talk about the one that is required. Let me say good things about it, because a lot of people like to slag it off very quickly. Now, some of the good things about the tie that is being practiced is that at least it builds a culture of duty, discipline, and religious obligation. Yes, I said it. Following Jesus Christ does not remove duty from you, obligation from you, or discipline. You will see the word obedience in verse 15. There is a sense in which for discipline, we need to feel our, but it's not every time. How many of you actually love praying every single day? Okay. I know not, you don't pray every single day. When you do pray, how many of you actually always feel like praying? Does that mean that you shouldn't always pray? Okay, I'll bring it down. For those who are married, how many of you actually really do love, feel like you love your husband every time? Oh, they're not really love. Uh, you see, some men are trying to force their hands, their wives to raise up their hands. Does that mean just walk out of the marriage because of that? No, there is a sense in which duty helps regulate our freedom. 
And so that has always been the tide in that regard has done that. And secondly, it ensures the security of your church. There's nothing, some of us that run businesses or actually accountants, there's nothing worse than actually being totally uncertain. People pledge to, this is different, people pledge to something, you actually make plans based on that thing, and yet you don't get the income. And then you now start dicing this text, have gentle reminder, hashtag this, you know. It, it becomes a bit of a problem. And so when you know basically the basic income of, of those in the church and you kind of know what percentage they're going to give, it helps you for planning. So that is the good thing about it. But I don't think it's correct. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Now I'm not going to go through all of these things, I'll just give you the references. But in the old covenant, I don't want to get into Abraham and Jacob, there's just no time. But in the old covenant, the time is functioned as a measure, just like we talk about kilograms, centimeters, and all those things. And there were three times. So the first one you can see in Numbers 18, 21 and 24. The second one you can see in Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 23. And the third one, Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. One was a, was a Levitical um, type. The second one was festive. And the third one was for the vulnerable. Levitical is that the people who actually were the Levites who served in the holy things, the stuff of the temple, they weren't working, they weren't farming. They had no land to actually get an income. So whilst they were doing the things of God, the people there would actually give them a tenth of their income to support them. One was doing something for, they were both doing stuff for each other. So you give a tenth of your income for that. The second one is that you give for the feasts that were annually held. And then the third one was, if a, if a Levite was in your place or there were poor people around you, you put a tithe every three years. So basically it was 23, 23, uh, a third percent of what you actually had. But let me tell you what this is like. This wasn't so much giving as much as it was a tax. And what is the thing about a tax? A tax is both required, mandated, but it's also specified. The government does not come to you and just say, you guys are required to give so that we can do stuff in the society and all that, but give any percentage you want. Guess how much people will give? Zero. Nothing. Zero. <laughs> just like some of you have not paid your own tax, like, now. Nah. Right? People would not, we, we wouldn't. Now, but the tax is both required and specified. Now, in Jesus Christ, that old covenant, and don't forget the old covenant is a full package. It comes with the priesthood, it comes with the temple, it comes with certain sacrifices, it also comes with certain ways to which you are taxed. If we are no longer under that covenant, we don't say that we can actually obey something here as of no, it's actually a particular package that's gone in Christ. Now, but that it's gone in Christ doesn't mean that there are certain principles that actually work. So, for instance, there's well, one God in the Old Testament. Guess what? How many gods there are in the New Testament? One. You shall not commit adultery in the Old. You shall not commit adultery in the New. Now, but in the New Testament passages and the things that we saw in covenant, we don't see anything that is specified. What we see is that something is required. I'll say that again. You are required to give. But the difference is that you are not specified. What you are meant to give isn't specified. So, what do we do? The New Testament requires generosity, but it doesn't actually make you specific. Just like the woman that broke the alabaster box, you get a sense in which, even with Paul here, that whilst it doesn't specify to us, in the sense in which it's saying you should do over and above that which is in the Old Testament. Now again, we don't all have the same, we're not always at the same 
because um, our income is not always at the same level all the time. But at the same time, at the same time, we are required to be generous either way. It's meant to be sacrificial. And I have to finish my last one because time is up. There's one more thing that I must say, which is this. There's another channel of giving. And that channel of giving is actually we do give to God. We do give to God. Notice in verses 12 to 11 and 13, it says something. Look at verse 12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the lost people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Somewhere else it calls it thanksgiving. In other words, we give thanks. When we give, we give thanks to God. How is it that you and I must and should actually be much more generous, those being under the new covenant, than actually those under the old? Because it's not like those under the old did not receive grace. They receive grace, but our knowledge of the grace of God is much more in the New Testament, so we should give more. In other words, we are called to give such an indescribable gift as Paul calls it in verse 15, because God gives us the greatest gift of all. What's the greatest gift of all? Well, if you remember in 1985, Pastor Jesus will remember, there was a song, there was great famine all around, especially in Ethiopia, or in Somalia or something. And then these fantastic number, I mean, the, the greatest gathering of musical stars under the heaven and the earth actually came together and they were going to sing the song. And the song was, We Are, we are the World. I remember the opening lyrics. It starts with, there comes a time when we hear a certain call when the world must come together as one. There are people dying. Oh, it's time to lend a hand to life, the greatest gift of all. Is it? Life is such a wonderful thing. But life actually does expire, whether or not you don't die through poverty. Eventually, we can't cheat death. What if you could live forever? That may be a pie in the sky kind of idea, but just what if? But God says in the most famous verse in the Bible that you can't actually live forever. Why? Because in giving you that, God gives you the greatest gift of all. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten You see, that's why in verse 13 it says, our generosity is an act of obedience that accompanies our confession of the gospel. Are you really someone who believes in God? How is your giving? If you're truly generous, if you're truly a partaker of, what you've, uh, of the generosity of God, how generous are you? And so, at this point, I really want to say, possibly, maybe, it's often that people hear the message about giving and actually try to the gospel, and, and but I really want to put a challenge to some of us here, who may not believe, who think they believe or not, or you examine your giving and thinking, how much is my giving actually motivated to the gospel? The issue here is not to, to write a check and repeat. The issue here is really how receptive are you to this greater gift of all? Because this gift of all was to pay a debt you would never be able to pay. God paid it at the cost of the life of your own son. And maybe you're here and you think, you know what? I do give. But I think I do give on that compulsion. Now don't forget it's a commandment. But composed, being composed to do it, it's almost like you can't be manipulated. It's almost under duress. That's not what God wants. God loves a cheerful giver. And so at this point, as we bow to prayer, I want you to really consider that in your heart. 
not just your money. Some of us here do need do need people to call us and ask us how they're doing. And when you call to ask how they're doing, they don't expect you to be faced. Hand before long after one training. We talk because they just didn't fine. And actually in our attendance or even in our gospel community, we need you around there. And also that beggar on the street that you possibly just didn't take time to look at, just wound up your your side screen and look the other way on your phone and speaking to myself. They need you to respond in God's generosity. That's right. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for what it is that we've looked at. We we know that it's often abused. We know that have these and have these things and yet we don't want to make the other the mistake of going to the other extreme. Are so generous that they look for more opportunities to be generous. Such are the people who you continue to give seed and bread. Make us to be those people. Church, I want City Church not to be referred to as the wealthy church, but let us be referred to as the generous church. Father, make us to be such. We ask all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.